0: Hello, my name is Wang Yan, and I am a reporter with News China. With our weekly News China podcast, we aim to give insight into the trends and happenings in modern China through a historical lens. Today, we discuss money and lending in Asian China. Ant Group, the fine tech arm of e commerce giant Alibaba, Made a big splash recently. Its planned listing on stock markets in Shanghai and Hong Kong on November 5th was expected to raise nearly 34.5 billion US dollars. If successful, it would have been the largest initial public offering in the world. But on November 3rd, the Shanghai Stock Exchange announced the abrupt suspension of the IPO, and the company said the same day, that it had decided to delay its IPO in Hong Kong. The day before the suspension, executives of the company, including Alibaba founder Jack Ma, were interviewed by China's central bank and regulators of banking, securities and foreign exchanges. Two days earlier, a draft regulation on online microloans was issued tightening the operations of online microloans. In the first half of 2020, microloans replaced online payment service as the largest source of ANT's revenue, according to the company's prospectors. Statements from regulators and ANT Group said the suspension was based on regulators' interviews and the change in the regulatory environment. The anticipated listing and the unexpected suspension put Ant's microloan business in the media spotlight. The business was backed by money from banks in partnership with Ant to encourage young people to splurge. In addition, Ant packaged these loans into asset-backed securities, known as ABS, and sold them to investors. The money from these investors was used to grant new loans. Analysts compare the practice to the U.S. subprime crisis in 2007. They believe Ant's operation put the country's financial system and depositors at risk. Chinese people seem to have long impressed the world for their preference for saving. Their enthusiasm for borrowing is apparently a new phenomenon. But did Asian Chinese borrow? If they did, how? In 1710 during the Qing, China's last imperial dynasty, Xiang Fusheng, a resident in Xuning County, central China's Anhui province, borrowed five taels of silver from a person surnamed Wang. A till is 50 grams. The collateral according to the contract was Xiang's eight-year daughter, Indeed, since the Qing dynasty in the early 3rd century BCE, using people as collateral to borrow money was banned in law. But it still often happened that people, especially women or girls, were put up as collateral. Men were the main source of national tax revenue. There was a much higher legal risk if male members of a family were used as collateral. In China's period dramas, there is often a plot involving poor people or distressed dignitaries borrowing money from pawn shops. This was the only business operation in Asian China which is similar to today's banking system. However, unlike banks today, pawn shops did not charge interest. The collateral was normally valued much higher than the loan. If a borrower could not redeem his collateral, Then the pawn shop took ownership. This kind of borrowing often happened when people needed to fund large spending, for example weddings and tax bills. There was a view that in ancient China, rural households were self-sufficient and thus did not need exchanges. This has been proved wrong. A household cannot produce everything they need for their daily lives. They had to buy farm tools and looms, for example, so they had to put aside some money to buy these things and borrowing contingencies. Small loans were normally made among family members or close friends. Defaults were rare. This well-connected social network and a small amount of loans made an interest-based lending business nearly impossible and unnecessary, let alone usury. A famous classical drama, Fifteen Guan, by Zhu Su Chen in the mid-17th century, describes a bloody story about borrowing. A butcher borrows some money from his relatives to buy pigs. He gets drunk when he returns and jokes to his stepdaughter, Su Xu Jen, that he had sold her to a rich family as a maid in exchange for the money. Su does not want to be a servant. So she runs away in the middle of the night to seek refuge with her aunt. On her way, she meets businessman Xiong Lan. Xiong happens to have on him the same amount of money as the butcher borrowed. That night, the butcher is murdered and the money he borrowed is stolen. Su and Xiong are arrested as suspects, tortured and forced to plead guilty. Just as they are about to be executed, Another official finds the real murderer and saves them. The title 15 guan comes from the amount of money that the butcher borrows and the businessman has on him. It's the equivalent of a few thousand yuan today. One guan is a string of 1,000 copper coins. We can imagine that 50 guan is very heavy. Since the Qing dynasty, in early 3rd century BCE, Till early 20th century, for more than 2,000 years, copper coins were widely used as money in China. There was a square hole in the middle of the coin, so in Chinese, the saying square hole, the big brother, refers to money or wealth. The Qin dynasty, 2,200 years ago, unified the currency system in China for the first time. It was a by metallic system, which means currency made of two different metals is recognized. Gold, a precious metal, was the higher value currency. But gold was not minted into money. Its value was measured by its weight. Copper, as a base metal, was minted into coins in circulation as the lower value currency. Clearly, copper coins were a very convenient currency for daily use. Since 621, during the Tang Dynasty, the title of an emperor's reign was printed on the coins. For example, a coin with the title Qianlong was sold at an auction in Beijing in August held by China Guardian Auctions. The auction house sold 285 Asian Chinese coins for more than 824,000 US dollars. The oldest one on sale was made during the spring and autumn period, between the 8th and 5th centuries BCE. In 8 AD, the Western Han Dynasty fell. The huge amount of gold it had was also gone in a couple of years, but still, no one knows where it went. Many historians believe that gold in the historical records of the Qing and Western Han period is real gold but the gold in the records from the eastern Han dynasty onward must be copper. China is one of the first regions in the world to issue paper money. Paper notes were in circulation along with copper coins from the southern Song to the Ming dynasties between the 12th and mid 17th centuries but the imperial governments had little idea that paper currency needs to be backed by credit from those who issue it, they tended to print too much paper money. Hyperinflation devastated the economy. For example, in less than 50 years between the second half of the 13th century and early 14th century, the paper money issued by the Yuan dynasty was worth 25 less than it had been. Economic collapse was one of the main reasons that brought the Yuan dynasty down. China was the largest exporter in the world in the Ming dynasty. Silver produced in the Americas flooded into China through foreign trade. As a result, biometallic currency system appeared in China again in the Ming and Qing dynasties. This time, silver was the higher value money. The lower value money was still copper coin. Silver not only shaped China's history, but also Chinese people's memories. In many TV and movie stories, Silver is used as money even in dramas that take place in much earlier dynasties like the Han and the Tang. The fact is that silver was rarely seen in China's monetary system till the mid of the Ming. Although copper coins were in wide use in China for a long time, they could not fully function as a currency by modern standards. As the Chinese idiom goes, a rich person can have 10,000 guan on his waist. 10,000 guan is made up of 10 million copper coins. It is hard to imagine even an elephant carrying such a heavy loan, let alone a person. This shows that copper coins as a low value currency had to be heavy enough to be valuable enough. It limited the full function of copper coins as a currency especially in large transactions. For example, in the Chan Yuan Treaty between the Northern Song Dynasty and its northern neighbor Liao Dynasty in 1005, the Song agreed to give Liao a yearly tribute. It was paid in silver and thin silk, not copper coins. A rich person certainly could not put 10 million copper coins on his waist. But he can keep them in his house. Another Chinese idiom describes a rich man as a person with 10,000 guan. There were copper coin shortages on the market from time to time during the Tao and Song dynasties. It was mainly caused by hoarding of copper coins by the imperial governments and rich families. However, strings that tied copper coins together into a guan decayed after some time. It made it difficult or even impossible to count the number of so many corns when the strings rotted. Given this, rich people preferred large fertile land and luxurious houses to any metal currency to build up and keep their wealth. In his advice to the emperor, Chao Chuo, a famous politician in the 2nd century BCE during the early western Han dynasty, wrote that no treasure, gold or silver, could shield people from hunger or cold. It was a typical view of wealth of Asian Chinese people. For them, the practicality of wealth mattered the most in life. Silver currency was completely replaced by paper money in a monetary reform in the 1930s. Today, it is common sense that a currency must be backed by the credit of the economy. The way of borrowing has also changed a lot in China. In the early years of China's reform and opening up, in the 1980s, family-based social networks funded business startups of entrepreneurs in eastern coastal areas. Some of these companies grew big enough later to access bank loans. But during the financial crisis in 2008, some heavily indebted entrepreneurs ran away or committed suicide. Since then, it has been difficult for private companies to seek loans from family-based social networks or banks. The big database, based FinTech, is supposed to provide a solution for credit risk management in lending business. However, FinTech itself Is not without risk. That is end of our podcast. Thank you to our writer, Dr. Zhang Yue, editor and translator, Li Jia, and copy editor, Kathleen Nade. We hope you enjoyed it. And thank you for listening. See you next week.